0: Hello listeners, Sachin here, hope you're well. My chat with David Badil to come, but before it does, I wanted to spend a little time asking if you'd all be kind enough to help generate a little support and exposure for this podcast. In case you're not aware, I started Fans last August and this is my 11th episode and the third of Series 2. I'm delighted with each and every one I've done so far as it's given me a chance to speak to a range of really great people about what for me is the most interesting and important aspect of football, football fandom. As the saying goes, football is nothing without the fans, something I believe to be 100% true and which we've all seen starkly during the past 11 months or so. Let's face it, all games have been much poorer for the lack of supporters inside grounds. So this podcast is all about speaking to people about what it means to be a football fan. And all the guests I've had on, including David Badil, have done a brilliant job of conveying everything that involves the highs, the lows, the excitement and the torture in regards to their respective teams. And the podcast has developed a decent audience, but I'm keen to expand it further, as I'm incredibly proud of the content produced so far, and want it to reach as large an audience as possible. That's been a struggle, given that as well as booking the guests, preparing to speak to the guests, actually speaking to the guests, editing the chat with the guests, and uploading that chat with the guests, I'm also doing all the promotion for it, which is somewhat limiting, and especially so given I'm doing it purely via Twitter. I'm not on Facebook or Instagram, and refuse to join either platform. So yes, spreading the word has proved a bit difficult. Given that, it would mean a lot if you could tell anyone you think may be interested in listening to this podcast about it, as well as giving it a plug on whichever social media sites you use. Also, it would be fantastic if you could give the podcast a five-star rating and review on iTunes, as that helps other people find it via that route. Fans is also on Spotify, so please do recommend it via that platform if that's indeed where you download your podcasts from. And if this is your first time listening to Fans, really hope you enjoy the episode to come. And if you do, which I'm sure you will, please do go back and listen to the previous 10 and tell your family and friends about them, and recommend them. In all seriousness, that would mean a lot. Anyway, I'll stop rambling now. Thanks for your time, and do enjoy my chat about supporting Chelsea with the brilliant David Bedil. Hello and welcome to Fans, the podcast hosted by me, Sachin Akrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting, or both, about being football fans. And joining me for this episode to talk all things Chelsea is, well, an icon of my youth and someone who continues to be excellent in my adulthood, comedian, writer, author and presenter, David Badil. David, how are you? I'm all right, Sachin, how are you? Very good, very good. Uh We said just before we start recording that we are—we're um we're both in London. I'm, I'm in South London. I presume you're in the capital as well. At some point, I'm <laughs> in North pre-
1: London.
0: North London, yeah. Well, my original neck of the Woods, I'm from Wembley originally, so. All
1: um, right. Rough, I spent a lot of time yeah. in Wembley over the years. Uh, well, I, I obviously saw... Wembley Stadium, but Indeed. also <laughs> <laughs> yeah, around Wembley. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's a—it's a reasonable part of. Uh, the world I guess. Um, No really delighted to get you on and and saw a link to you being at Wembley Stadium. Um, I just wanted before we get into talking about your your love of Chelsea and your time supporting the club to talk about um, the 90s. Um, It's a decade I grew up watching football and I totally buy into the idea that it was English football's most fun exciting and culturally interesting decade and and for me, you and you and Frank Skinner played a big role in that with fantasy football, and then with three lines, which I remember seeing you guys um, sort of lead a chorus of supporters in singing at the uh, England Scotland game in at Euro '96. I was there; it was a, it was a magical day. Um, I'm just curious to as to how much you buy into that idea of English football in the '90s, though, uh, that it was a decade when everything changed, starting off with the World Cup in Italy, and then going through the contributions you and Frank made, but also including things like the creation of Premier League and. Gazetta Football Italia, things like that. I mean, do we overhype how significant and how different the 90s was for English football?
2: Well,
1: that's a big question. Uh, Well, I am older than you. uh, And so uh, I don't know if I just boxed the 90s uh, in that way. I have... Uh, fond if nuanced memories of the <laughs> 70s the big sort of incredible football around in the 70s all of you know George Best and Rodney Marsh and you know Eddie Gray and all these incredible flair footballers that emerged then I don't have memories of 1966 but 1966 still weighed fairly you know heavily on my yeah. consciousness growing up as a football fan but I would agree that looking back from now the 90s were uh, also an amazing time in football. Football changed uh, for loads of reasons. Um, it certainly became a more wider cultural force in the 90s. I think when I grew up, football was basically thought of as this other thing that certainly intellectuals never talked about. Um, it was basically just it was just this sport. It had it was riven by hooliganism and racism and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, in the 90s, and there are lots of reasons for this, uh, fantasy football is one of them, and Nick Hornby is another one, and the Premier League is another one, Gazza's tears are another one. Uh, the idea of football became much more something that fitted into the culture in general. And in fact, in fact at times, felt like the culture was totally focused on. And I think that um, Euro 96, I guess, represents a sort of high point of that for English football. It felt to me like oh, this is football is really saying something and coming together uh, as a kind of symbol of this country not being the kind of nationalist, uh, aggressive, triumphalist thing that the National Front and some ideas of football fandom would have it in the past. It always felt to me, and weirdly, I don't know if this would work anymore, but it always felt to me that when I was at Wembley and watching people's fly flags with the crosses of St George on them and singing Three Lions, that for a moment we'd managed to find a kind of non-aggressive, non-racist patriotism, you know, a kind of like vulnerable almost patriotism. I, I, I personally feel that's a little bit to do with the lyrics of the song, which mm. uh, if you actually look at them are not very aggressive or triumphalist. No, basically, they, they basically say, we're going to lose, <laughs> but maybe not. <laughs>
2: right? Absolutely, and I yeah. think...
1: If you're, if you're singing that as your anthem, you can't really be a bother boy, for want of a better word. You can't really be stomping on people. It's a very different anthem from, you know, uh, the Pope and the IRA, essentially, uh, or Rule Britannia or whatever it might be. So that was that. But there was also a lot of brilliant football. I mean, it, it's banging a problem, by the way. Can you hear it?
0: Um, I can hear a bit of banging. We should say as well, yeah, that you, you did say before we started recording that uh, there's building work going on. It's, it's absolutely fine. We can hear it. The, okay. the listeners might not be able to pick up on it, actually because it's pretty distant. Okay. I can, can hear it. Do, Partly- yeah.
1: <laughs> banging. It's not Frank Skinner locked in the cupboard. Uh, I mean, that would be amazing, just, obviously. Yeah, but no, sadly not. Wanting to contribute. No, it? it's just uh, <laughs> next door of decided to, it feels like, not knock the wall down between us and them. Uh, but yeah, there was a lot of amazing football. I, I think as someone who well, throughout my life, but certainly when I was young, as far as English football went, in, in, international football always thought England didn't play, you know, the flair players, didn't really, kind of ignored all those kind of Tony Currys and uh, Alan Hudsons and all those brilliant players, uh, Rodney Marsh, uh, that suddenly we were playing flair football, certainly in 1990. I mean, yeah, that team is amazing, that team with Gaza. And Waddle and Beardsley and nineca it 's an incredible team, uh, and also yeah, some, some of some the in one thousand nine hundred and ninety six although I was always a bit pissed off that Matthew Notitier never oh. made it as a regular in that team but yeah i mean there 's a huge that thing about thirty years of her i don 't think it 's just about winning it 's also about a sense that England should have this really beautiful sort of way of playing football and often have failed to do that, and so when we beat Holland score four goals against Holland who very much like in the 70s would have emerged as the, the beautiful football team it feels yeah. like feels redemptive at some level yeah, no, absolutely. does that answer your question? Does that answer your question?
0: I think, yeah, in many ways, I think it is a great answer, a very full answer. And I mean, just to talk about fantasy football, so it ran between ninety four and ninety six, uh, and you had specials. No, it in ran,
1: 90- ran much longer than that. Sorry, uh, you know again, what? I
0: thought I thought he did as well, and I was, I, those dates didn't sound uh, right to me when I was doing my it, research. It started in nineteen
1: ninety three. Yeah, uh, I, I'd been in a double act with Rob Newman. Yeah, and that, we set up quite acrimoniously at the end of ninety two. It was in 96 oh, yeah, right, yeah. you're right you're right i've got my own play right. <laughs> no you're absolutely right
2: yeah
1: <laughs> but you are wrong as well uh, because uh, we then uh, we actually moved to ITV uh, and we did uh, a show in 98 for the world cup yeah uh, and we brought it back also to do a show for euro 2004
0: yeah yeah now i was going to say you did you did three specials in 96 and then you yeah uh, 98 for the world cup and in 2004 for the euros as well um, Yeah. I mean, it's had a huge impact uh, on a lot of people, huge influence. Myself, I am the generation who grew up watching, I was a teenager in the 90s. And thinking about it in preparation for this podcast, it sort of feels like an early podcast in a way. I think a lot, a lot of the people who do football podcasts now, they're my, sort of my age, mid to late 30s. And it's almost, I feel like they've been influenced by the way you and Frank spoke on, on fantasy football, which was very witty very smart you didn't dumb down you didn't talk down to football supporters but there was also an element of, of fun and silliness as well there do you do you look at it almost as this podcast era we live in now where everyone's got a podcast uh it feels like a lot of the people who do football ones who are certainly my age were influenced by what you
1: guys were doing sort of 25 years ago i think it would be uh naff of me to say yeah it's it all these football podcasts now they're basically just fancy football because they're not but what i would say is that fantasy football certainly on telly there were the fanzies there was a lot of fanzies like when saturday comes and stuff like that yeah. before us uh and, and to some extent as i say what nick hornby did but there was a shift in, in the way that you could talk about football uh, so it wasn't just dry, mm. you know, punditry analysis, which is really what it had been up to that point. Actually, me and Rob Newman uh, had done sketches on a show called When Saturday Comes, which you probably, well, hang on, that's, that's the name of the fancy. What, what was it also called that? What was that show called? There was a show just I before you guys started
0: called, called where, uh, Standing Room Only. Was, I think i have very memories Yeah, that. Was it that? Yeah. yeah. That that seemed, yeah. yeah.
1: There's some funny sketches on there. Yeah, I remember there. that. One one that. I have really fake memories like, of that. Um, me and Rob did where talking about Jeff Thomas's miss. If you remember that miss that Jeff Thomas did in some England friendly, uh, it was like incredible. And we compared it to the JFK shooting. Uh, <laughs> uh, I like, There must've been some other players involved. It was such an incredible miss. You know, one of the things about, uh, I think it was, I think Julian Barrett of the Mighty Boosh, uh, him and a mate once did a uh, little internet thing about rave culture, uh, called the Pod, and it, it really took the piss out of rave culture. But he loved rave, right? He loved he loved acid house, and all that kind of stuff. And it, I think he said to really take the piss out of something, you have to love it. And I think fantasy football came from the same place. It's like, it's incredibly piss-taking of footballers uh, and football in general, and football fans. Mm. And you know, it, it. And that's because if you are a football fan, you spend an awful lot of time, you know, slagging off your own yeah. team or making jokes about. Your own team or whatever and that's part of the experience and there's a reality uh to fantasy football in the way that we talked about football it wasn't it was irreverent and it wasn't respectful uh and that's because it was to some extent a fancy and yeah. and that's an early word for a podcast
3: not his most enjoyable afternoon of the season this right you
1: off If you're looking for a level-headed manager, he's your man. Thank you. This week, this week we recreate Avi Cohen's debut match at Anfield. Ooh. And we'll be saying a big hello to Dean Grey Goose.
2: Hello, I'm Dean Grey Goose. Hello! <laughs>
1: Uh we got a lot of letters again. This one is from uh Blockbuster Video from the One Stop Shopping Centre in Perry Bar, Birmingham. Ah. Ah, uh, yeah, happy days. And uh <laughs> it's from Rich Rob and Paul and they've sent us their uh, the adult section of their main catalogue. Let's have a look at that. Let's see what the adult section includes. It includes prescription for lust, uh pregnant housewife special, Jackie, pregnant Asian special, featuring Rani, seven months pregnant, and Plymouth Argyle, simply the best. <laughs> <laughs> Is that
0: erotic brilliant well let, let's get on to chelsea then david obviously uh your your big football love um now if i'm right you became a fan of the club at the age of six and while watching your older brother Ivor get excited while he watched chelsea win the 1970 fa cup final against leeds united what chelsea win the 1970 fa cup final against leeds united a is that true and b if so can i say it's one of the sweetest stories i've ever heard and I say that as an older brother uh, myself. I find it very touching.
1: Well, my older brother, Ivor who do you know him? I know of him, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I know of him. I've seen him on TV and, and I talking about there. him. Right. Okay. No, no, you
1: know, uh, my no. My older brother, Ivor Badil, who's 18 months older than me, is uh, absolutely key uh, in my love of the game, but also in my love of Chelsea. Uh, I, I, I always feel in our culture there's not enough about siblings. Right. Uh, I think there's a lot about parents and children and how mm. much parents. But my parents, if anyone's seen my show, my family, not the sitcom that I did a few years ago, well, they were mental and very neglectful parents. They weren't there a lot of the time. Uh, and I would say I was very deeply parented by my older brother, uh, who is a very nice, <laughs> sort of caring bloke. Uh, and one of the ways that it affected me was I very much relied on my older brother, for, you know, my own personality, I think, when I was young. I just copied everything that he did when I was young. So I didn't probably know what football was, really, when I was six. I had a, no real, a bit of a sense of it, obviously, but apart from kicking around in the park. Uh, but he was eight. And I remember watching on our black and white telly, the FA Cup final replay uh, in against Leeds, uh, the one where David Webb scores uh, from Ian Hutchinson's throw at the end. And he, I remember, he just got really excited and jumping up when Chelsea won. It's a very early memory. And so did I. So I did that, right? And what, what is interesting about it, in a way, is I think people sometimes ask me, why are you a Chelsea fan? You, you're from North London, which which I am. I grew up in Wilsdon and Cricklewood and that area. And I think, like, a few people not heard of television because <laughs> it's long gone when you you went to support the club that was round the corner because yeah. you lived in stoke or whatever i mean maybe maybe for some people that is the case but if you live in london you know uh unless you're you're right on you know the emirates doorstep or whatever you're quite likely to be influenced by something you see on tele before you your geography and that's what happened to us i mean there was no local club really we used to go watch hendon uh, play, it was actually the first time I ever went to football, was to watch Hendon, who were in the Rossmans Isthmian League oh, wow, at the time, okay. which was a very depressing experience. <laughs> but by the time I was, was able to go to Chelsea, and we'll talk about this in a minute, I imagine, yeah. but they, had, they had a very exciting team in 1970. We won the FA Cup, and then we won the European Cup Winners' Cup, mm. which was a big deal in those days. Mm. Uh, and we beat Real Madrid in 1971. And so I, when I started to understand football, I thought, oh, this is a brilliant team. It's a really glamorous team. When I had to go mid seventies, it was basically a team of donkeys. I mean, not entirely. There were still Ray Wilkins and some other good players, but I'd say it was a team dominated by Mickey Droy, uh, who was, you know, not a flair player. So by the time I was going to to actually see Chelsea play, uh, it was really of di- twenty years of mediocrity. Before in the nineties, uh, the club, you know, started to rebuild. Yeah, well, so so even though I I love Ivor and I'm grateful to him for (laughs) making me a Chelsea, I also blame him for (laughs) taking me through the 70s (laughs) and 80s with Chelsea.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that, that's quite an interesting aspect of your of your Chelsea fandom, is that it started on the high, as you said, a team of the very early 70s, the late 60s, early 70s, was a really good team, a team of sort of Benetti, Osgood, Hudson, won the FA Cup in 70, won the, the Cup Winners' Cup in 71. But then by the mid-70s, as I said, when you're starting to go, I mean, they got relegated in 75 to the second division, having slowly fallen down the first division. Yeah. And your first game was Valentine's Day 1976, um, and they're in the second division at that time. And just to add to kind of the sense of why we're around, it was a defeat, wasn't it? A three-two defeat to Palace, Crystal Palace in the FA Cup fifth round. Uh, it was a really interesting game. Yeah.
1: And this went- is my I mean, to be honest with you, to be honest with you, I can't remember. Uh, this is my first match I remember. Oh, okay. what you because what you, you are younger than me. Uh, you, you know, going to football when you're a kid mm. in the seventies was <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Right. I, I used to go stand in the shed, and uh, it was. A, full of hooligans, full of fascists, and B, just physically, I was small and terrified because men would move in uh, really, really frightening ways whenever a goal was scored or something mm. happened or whatever, and you constantly thought you'd get crushed. I did, for some reason, I, I carried on going, but it does mean my memories are, are fairly blurred of the early time because they're very much mixed in with that experience. But yeah. yes, I do remember Crystal Palace... One of my earliest memories. And yeah, us losing 3-2, Peter Taylor, who was a part of that Malcolm Allison side and and, and kind of a, a poster boy, as far as I remember, of that Crystal Palace team, scored twice. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that my first memory of Chelsea is of them losing. Because... Uh, I would say that my early memories are mainly of them losing.
0: Yeah, I, I'm just curious actually because my I'm a Liverpool fan and my first memory of watching Liverpool is seeing them lose as well. It was that famous Michael Thomas game, the 1989 title decider. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. he's uh, charging through them. No, game? no, I wasn't. I was. I was eight years old. I watched it uh, with my. You, I'm sorry, ex- you're, you're, yeah, you're watching my extended. Yeah, well, watching my extended family, sort of half Liverpool, half Arsenal, so it's quite the experience. But I sort of wonder if. if you are early...
1: Brian Moore. Was it Brian Moore? Yeah, Brian, Brian Moore's face. Famous... Famous...
0: Exactly, yeah. The classic bit of commentary. And I wonder, I mean, we've both both our early experiences, I mean, what my very early experience, but one of your early experiences, watching your team plays them lose. And I often wonder if that sets train a kind of natural pessimism around your team so even now when Liverpool are doing well I still feel quite pessimistic about the team I always think they're going to lose the next game do you do you having gone through that difficult time in the 70s and seen them lose quite a lot and not be very good do you think that's made you even during the good times which we'll come on to later under Abramovich do you think that's made you a naturally pessimistic Chelsea supporter because it started off badly
1: maybe I mean I've I know worse people uh, as Andy Jacobs who <laughs> Producer of fantasy football. Yeah, uh, I know him well. Yeah, he does. A massive Chelsea fan.
0: Yeah. Does he excellent talk sports? I show, don't think
1: I know any. Yeah, he does talk sports. Show. Yeah. I don't I know anyone who likes <laughs> to complain as much. <laughs> I've come out of games at Stamford Bridge where we've won and won convincingly. And Andy will say, yeah, but, you know, so-and-so yeah. is playing shit. And why does he do that? I'm like, I, he's one of those masochistic football fans who just loves to complain. And I don't know if I'm pessimistic exactly. I mean, it's interesting you interviewing me right at the moment because I think Chelsea are really playing quite badly at the moment. Um, yeah. And you interviewed me just after we lost to Leicester uh, last night. And I was watching thinking, you know, we've got a good load of talent here. And it's really not gelling and I, mm. I, I'm a very big fan of Frank Lampard partly because you know I think of him as a great Chelsea hero of recent times and I've met him he's a lovely bloke and I think he's an intelligent football mind but something is not right at all and it does feel familiar to answer your question it does <laughs> feel like I, I'm not looking I'm not looking at thinking oh this has never happened before <laughs> it's quite often the case that Chelsea can't quite seem to make it work you know and uh, obviously we had under Mourinho, under the first generation of Mourinho, that was the the only time I can think of where it felt like, oh, blimey, this must be what it's like to be Liverpool in the 70s, you know, or Arsenal in the 90s or whatever. Mm. This is to have a team that is impregnable and amazing and wins everything. But it actually feels quite short now, that time, uh, and involves the thing that happens with Mourinho of it all then going wrong and him him going into the bunker and blaming everyone else. Uh, But, Yes. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm deeply pessimistic, but my expectations are curbed, to quote Larry David.
0: Just going back to that game against Palace, as you say, it was a really exciting game. So Palace went two up. uh, Chelsea then came back to make it two all through ray wilkins and steve yeah. hicks and then peter yeah. taylor got the winner with a with a really good free kick i mean he was absolutely excellent i was watching the highlights back it was last. Kick, wasn't it? it was a free kick to make it three two and he was and we should say this is the peter taylor for people who aren't aware who temporarily managed england in the late 90s was it when keegan left and was leicester manager for a bit i didn't know because he was before yeah. my time but watching that game i mean he was an absolutely brilliant winger for Palace. I didn't realise yeah. how good he was, a real flair player. But I think you've spoken I mean, you yeah. touched on it there. You've spoken about being in a shed that, uh, well going to watch Chelsea in the shed. And I think that day in particular um, was quite a terrifying experience. I think the match of the day highlights that that night showed fighting in, in the ground and um, missiles being thrown. I think there's some kung fu kicks as well. I think that's something we forget in this era of super sleek family-friendly stadiums, that watching football live in the 70s was a really terrifying experience especially for kids I mean you were 11 when that game happened I mean yeah did that I mean, you, well it didn't because we know yeah. it didn't but was there was any horrible. danger of that putting you <laughs> off going to live football and yeah how horrible was it
1: oh well I know there was some danger of it um, I okay. mean I carried on going uh, but I didn't go that much in the 80s uh, mm. partly because I was at university so I, I wasn't in London all the time uh, but I think also You know, things had got very bad by then. Certainly, uh, you know, without going over all the terrible disasters that happened in that decade, uh, there was still a lot of violence. There was a lot of um, political horribleness around football. Uh, And I never became disenchanted with the game, but I didn't feel desperately like I wanted to go as much as I had been going when I was a kid. And then I started going again at the end of that decade, basically. Uh, And I've never stopped uh so i've had a well i couldn't afford it in the 80s because i'd never any money in the 80s but yeah i mean when i started to come into some money i started doing well that was one of the first things i bought was a season ticket and i've been a season ticket holder since 1990 uh so it was obviously still in me but i think i did have a an antipathy towards or sort of just thinking this is going to be like kind of like hard work uncomfortable and fucked up Mm -hmm. in the 80s and so i watched football mainly on the telly in that decade, I would say, but you know, you know how it is. Football can be very ugly, but it never really lo- leaves you as something that you are in love with. <laughs> that sounds like you're sort of an abused partner <laughs> of football, but it can feel like that sometimes, and yeah. certainly it did I think in the in the late seventies and eighties.
0: Yeah, I mean, in that period as well, I guess if you're not going to go see Chelsea, it's not the worst period because, uh, as you mentioned earlier, it wasn't the best time for the club. They're bobbing between, between the, the fir- Yeah, exactly. They seem to move quite frequently between the two. They're very yeah, inconsistent no, team that period. Yeah, but
1: we had some good players then. We had Kerry Dixon, we had Pat Nevin. You know, there were some good footballers, good players. Terrible strips. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. Very terrible. That's
0: the Amiga yeah, days, wasn't it? I think. Was that, was that uh, the Amiga uh, era? But-
1: Yeah, Yeah. Uh, but I would say that the club, you know, started to come together uh, before Boronovic, actually, when Matthew Harding appeared. Uh, That's when I think as the modern club and the club that sort of started to become uh, the identity of the Chelsea that we see now, which I think is a top club for all the stuff that I've said already about uh, pessimism it's it feels to me like the return of Chelsea as a viable club in the top flight happened when Matthew Harding appeared and then you know Hoddle became the manager I was very excited I mean as a man who grew up in the 70s even though it was the end of his career and even though he's a bit mental I was very excited to see Glenn Hoddle mm-hmm. come and play for Chelsea Rude Hullitt come and play for Chelsea I mean these were incredibly emotional moments for me actually mm-hmm. viali to see those players appear in the 90s because you know, I, I I thought of those people as gods, you know, and, and I never imagined they would play for Chelsea. I mean, that in that sense, I did have low self-esteem for the club. You know, uh, I thought of it as a lowlier club and thus it was sort of amazing to see those players playing for us, I think. Yeah. Well, George Wayer played for us, didn't he? Is that right? Oh, that's
0: right. I do you remember yeah, very, very sure. end of the nineties, I think ninety nine. Yeah. Well, I was going to come on to that that period. I mean, going back to my my kind of love of the nineties, I do think it was an incredibly exciting time for English football. And part of that was that that wave of foreign talent that came into into England in the mid-90s, you know, Klinsman at Spurs, Burkhab at Arsenal. And and for me, a really iconic transfer was Hullett to Chelsea in the summer of ninety-five. You know, he was a genuine world class talent, perhaps coming obviously to the to the end of his career at that time. He's like, sort over the hill, really over his peak. But I mean, that that was incredibly exciting up here. And as you touch on Zola, then came I think the following year. You've had Desai, Viardi, yeah. Di Matteo. I mean, supporting yeah. Chelsea in the nineties, it must have just felt like going back to the late sixties, early seventies. Almost felt like supporting one of the most glamorous, coolest clubs in the country again. I, I guess.
1: Well, Zola, I think is is the thing in that. I mean, there's all those brilliant players. Uh, And and there was a sort of like legacy excitement to seeing Hullet or Viali or uh, Hodgkin even. You know, these are people who, when I was younger, I'm so admired. It was so, for me, beautiful to be playing for Chelsea. But I don't remember any of those players while they were playing for Chelsea making me think, blimey, they're amazing. I mean, they still were good, actually. And I can remember Hullet particularly being good. But they weren't amazing because they were past their best zola there were points at which you thought this is like having a magic person mm. playing for your team i mean yeah. you may know this but zola at one point in his career, was scoring one out of two free kicks really right? I, some, I remember him scoring a lot a penalty <laughs> yeah wow yeah some players don't have a penalty ratio like wow. that you yeah. know i mean literally you'd get a free kick and you'd expect zola to score um and I was there when he scored that incredible goal. Do you know the one? It's um I think it was against Norwich.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, Graham so took a corner yeah. and he flicked it with the back of it from a it's most extraordinary goal. And I didn't know what had happened. I thought, how has the ball gone in the net? I was I was at the ground, right? And I didn't know how the ball and I didn't understand it until I got home and could look at it on the then quite basic internet. Uh, or will tell you whatever, and I had to slow it down because it's such an incredible goal. Yeah. If anyone hasn't seen it, you should go and have a look at it. A to take.
3: Not a good corner, but still turned in brilliantly by Zola. Wow, well, it looked like a back heel into the net. Extraordinary finish from Gianfranco
1: Zola. Instinctive absolutely brilliant. Well, he's determined to finish his career on a high. Oh, look at that. That was sensational. I think I have to say that I did Lusso a big injustice there. I thought he completely duffed the corner to the near post. Look at that. I was also, I was there, the, the last ever European Cup Winners' Cup final against Strasbourg when Zola scored the winning goal there. I was there then. Horrible, horrible fan experience. By the way, just in terms of what we're talking about, the fan experience was not over in the 70s. I went, uh, I traveled to that game in Stockholm and it was hideous and ended up in an airport at three o'clock in the morning with the Swedish police blocking Chelsea fans getting on their own flights back. (laughs) Wow. I had to basically bribe my way onto a flight to get home from that 1997 game. Had they been uh, yeah, fighting so... at the
0: game then? I wasn't aware of it. I remember watching the game, but I don't remember any sort of reports it of who really,
1: anything you, like that. To be fair to the Chelsea fans, there wasn't really fighting at that game, although quite an ugly contingent of Chelsea fans went, because uh, the plane I flew out on had a lot of pretty horrible chanting going on, including anti-Semitic chanting in, on that aeroplane. Uh, oh, so okay. I'm not suggesting that uh, it was it was very divine people, but in the way of things i've noticed this in other games in england games i've gone to abroad and in chelsea games I've gone to abroad barcelona places like that there's such a fear of british english fans oh, yeah, that the, the police often start to impose incredible yeah. strictures before you've left the ground you're like you're there for like three hours afterwards you miss your flight back yeah. you know they, they block coaches to the airport it was all that kind of stuff yeah. and so that was yeah, that was horrible
0: yeah. No, I can fully empathise with that. I mean, I've I've gone to a lot of European away games as a Liverpool fan the last couple of years, and the way British fans are treated is it's actually self-defeating because it creates the tension that they're trying to prevent. I mean, I went to Paris Saint-Germain way a couple of years ago and I think we had five security checks before we could get into the ground. And by the fifth one, everyone is really pissed off and actually then starting to not literally, but you know, lashing out at the police and the security guards. Whereas if they just treat us like adults and let us in, we won't cause any trouble. So now I can totally empathize with that. Yeah. Yeah, It was going on in the nineties and it's certainly going on, going on now. Um, I just want to, you you mentioned him, Matthew Harding. I did want to come on to him because I, for me as well, he feels like the start of modern Chelsea, but perhaps a figure that's forgotten somewhat because of the other very rich man who comes into Chelsea in the early noughties. But um, he was a fan. I think he was an investment broker turned into a wealthy businessman, invested in the club. I knew knew him. I knew
1: him. I really knew him. him. I was going to ask you
0: if you knew him. Yeah. Because he's got a stand named after him as well. And he's a cherished figure at the club, isn't he? Yeah. Not
1: only do I know him, I mean, I don't, because it's, I didn't consider myself a massive friend of Matthew Harding's, but I knew him and he was a, a very nice, massive Chelsea fan. Mm. But uh, Ken Bates, who I'm less of a fan of, <laughs> uh, after Matthew's death, uh, came up to me and went in a very kind of like weird way, said, oh, David Baddiel, Matthew Harding's best mate. And I thought, that's a very weird thing to say after he's dead in a My kind mate. of aggressive way. But um, no, he was, yeah, he was a very big Chelsea fan and he was the first person to really put money into the club not on the level that Abramovich did because he didn't have the money that Abramovich did uh but it sort of made a statement mm. uh and it also made a statement about how a fan who's, who's done very well can you know revitalize a club I guess Abramovich made an incredible difference uh, and obviously there's a different relationship to Abramovich who I've I have met him as well actually but I can't say we hung out <laughs> <laughs> in the way that I did actually hang out with Matthew Harding yeah I mean, for a start, there were too many frightening people around Roman for us to hang out. Uh, I'd be too worried that if I got my phone out, (laughs) someone would think I was trying to kill him and take me out.
0: (laughs) When did that happen? When did you meet Abramovich? (laughs) And what was the circumstances around Man United,
1: actually. It was away at Man United. Oh, OK. I can't remember which season it was. Uh, Don't push me on it. But it was a... I've gone to Chelsea Man United and i managed to get into the director's box and... At half time. Obviously, Roman was there and surrounded by these yeah. terrifying Russian security <laughs> people. Blimey. And I basically decided I was going to say hello. But in that moment, I thought <laughs> <laughs> I might not get through this hello. Yeah. Who knows what might happen? Uh, but he said hello. He didn't. He didn't. At that point, he, he didn't seem like like he could speak English very well. Yeah. I mean, he knew what hello was. <laughs> that was about it. Yeah. Um, no, so we- yeah, he's a more distant.
0: Yeah. Well, he's so distant. I mean, I've, I've never heard his voice. I mean, he's one of those sort of, he's so elusive that I don't even know what he sounds like. I mean, has he got a deep voice? Is he, is he quite high-pitched? No, is...
1: no neither. <laughs> quite quiet. <laughs> yeah. seems, quite, seems quite shy, although, as I say, when you're surrounded by that many security people, it might just be, you know, a function of that. But yeah, he seems quite shy and withdrawn. And you see, what is hard to know about Roman Abramovich is what it's about. You know what i mean yeah uh, like with matthew Harding, we knew he was a massive chelsea fan uh, and that's was that sort was of his massive. boyhood dream yeah, to be able yeah, yeah. to invest in the club and, and build the club or whatever with roman Bromovich, i don't think he was a chelsea fan as a kid because you know he's russian and it seems quite unlikely uh, <laughs> but i don't think he's not a fan i don't think i think he's a football fan and i think he clearly wanted to own a football club but yeah it it certainly feels more like any Chelsea fan will tell you, a Chelsea fan, and there may be some who say, oh, you know, I'm not bothered or whatever. Everyone is grateful for the money and for the way that that means we can buy incredible talent for the club. You know, it's just that it's hard to identify with Roman Horowitz yeah. in the way that as a fan you can identify with Matthew Hardy. Yeah.
0: He might have loved watching Dimitri Karin in the 90s, and that's what made him fall in love with, with Chelsea. Yeah, I've been David. all
1: about Dimitri Karin. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, let, let uh, before <laughs> before we get yeah, absolutely. before we get to Abramovich, I should just say Matthew Arden, tragically died in in 1996 in a in a helicopter crash. Um, and then Abramovich came in in 2003, and it feels like it was such a huge and um defining moment in Chelsea's modern history. It's had such an influence. I would suggest almost there's two eras in Chelsea's era. There's the pre-Abramovich era and the and the post-Abramovich era. The club changed so fundamentally and dramatically in 2003 with his takeover. Am I am I being slightly over the top there or do you agree? Does it feel like a very different club to support? Has it felt like a different oh. club to support in 2003?
1: Well, as I say, I, mean, I don't want to go over what we've said already. I, I personally trace it to Matthew Harding, Harding yeah. and yeah, the yeah. influx of the, great, uh, of the great international players towards the end of their careers who came to Chelsea in the late 90s. That felt to me, that feels to me like that's when the sea change between no, Chelsea no. being... Essentially, a very second-rate club in the in the 80s uh, to becoming the club that they are now, and I wonder if uh, you know history is very difficult to sort of you know sort out like this. But I wonder if the sort of extra glamour and extra success that Chelsea did have uh, at the end of the 90s is what attracted yeah. Abramovich the club, uh, you know, because he's someone who clearly likes the idea of being, however shy he is you know, uh, at at a big club, at the centre of things and with big players. So I wonder if that set the stage for him. But absolutely, the club is a different club uh, Mm -hmm. being owned by Bromovic.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's that story, isn't there, that he went to see Man United play Real Madrid in, in the Champions League and that's what attracted him to English football. But obviously, there must have been a reason he went to Chelsea specifically. And yeah, as you say, the success of the, the late 90s perhaps played a, a huge role in that. I mean, under Ramovich, there's been five league titles, five FA Cups, three League Cups, two Europa Leagues and the Champions League. Um, have you found yourself almost taking that, taking that success for granted or having gone through the difficulties of the 70s and the 80s Perhaps, you, perhaps you never take that sort of level of success for granted. You've seen the bad times, so you always appreciate the good times.
1: Um, yeah, I think I, would, I think I do always appreciate the good times. To be honest with you, um, I mean, I think I think I never expected Chelsea to win what I would call the European Cup. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I think that probably is for me the answer to your question. <laughs> uh, I, I think the fact I, I was at both. You know, we were we were in the final against Man United the year before, you may remember, uh, when John Terry fell over. Yeah. Um, and uh that was an amazing game, actually. That that game in Moscow was an incredible game. Uh, but we lost that, and then the next year we're back, and Chelsea, you know, rather despite being clearly the, the not the side who had the better of that game, uh beat Bayern Munich to win the European Cup. Uh and that still feels like okay i i you're a Liverpool fan, as I say, you're not a Liverpool fan who experienced the seventies, but I think when I grew up in the seventies, I had a sense that Liverpool fans must just expect that they must yeah. just expect basically to 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 win the European Cup, or be there or thereabouts use the football cliche for the european Cup and for I never expected that, and so it did that yeah, that felt like an incredible thing. I still think probably, and it might be to do with the way we won it. Uh, there was a sense in which I I didn't think right now we're home and dry and we're going to dominate European football for decades, which we didn't. <laughs> uh, so, so you know, but but I you know certainly we've had a lot of incredible talent, including managerial talent. You know, uh, you know I think obviously there's Mourinho, but there's also you know Ancelotti and Hiddink and all those people. You know for all the fact that they didn't quite do it. Conte and Sarri are both sort of very, you know, amazing managers or whatever. So the, the, the although we could talk about this, the club has got a terrible record for sacking people uh, when they've possibly not, uh, you know, quite been allowed to do what they could do. But anyway, I don't know, I've, seen, I've drifted. I've digressed from the question. I don't know what the answer is to the question. I basically think of Chelsea, I think, still as a club, uh, uh, as now a big, glamorous, important club, but still not quite up there with Liverpool and Man City and, you know, and Real Madrid and Barcelona and all those clubs.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe that is defined by the fact that you haven't built on that 2012 Champions League success. You know, if you had won three of the yeah. next four, then I guess you then you, you reach that echelon of, of European football, don't you? You become a genuine superpower. I mean, were you in Munich for the final? I think you
1: said you were. Yeah, Yeah. I was. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that must have been amazing. amazing. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are let me just t- say something yeah of uh, there are moments in football like so i am you asked me about pessimism i think as a person uh i'm i'm not pessimistic exactly but i'm very rarely completely happy it <laughs> might be a jewish thing uh I, the, um, it's I, a very asian a thing, that, thing as well you know, don't worry i'm the yeah. same yeah, yeah as well yeah <laughs> but there's always a part of me that's thinking yeah but there's this is. except there are a few moments in football where I say I was 100% happy. For example, when David Platt scored in extra time against Belgium in 1990, I would say I blacked out almost with joy <laughs> for wow. about three minutes. I couldn't do anything else. And I would say the same thing at the final whistle uh, of yes. you know uh, the European Cup. I think when we won the Champions League, I can only just about remember the eruption of joy uh, with me and my brother and Ivor I there and the, and the Chelsea fans who I didn't know all hugging me and whatever yeah it was like unbelievably happy at that point in time all comes down to this one kick of the ball
2: by Didier Drogba yes! it's the greatest night in Chelsea's history champions of Europe at last
1: Champions League winners the hard way And they've beaten a path back Into next season's Champions League 2 It is Chelsea's European Cup At last It's Chelsea history
0: Nothing like the first time As someone who's seen it's your, their team win the European Cup. It's it's a very very special experience. I don't think it, I don't think it ever stops being that, or if it can't be anything but that, it's very very special. Um, you mentioned the manager situation. I mean, there's been eleven different managers since since uh, Abramovich came in two thousand three. Mourinho twice, of course. Uh, it feels like the manager has become a very transient figure at Chelsea in the um, in the Abramovich era. So what's your take on that? Are you somebody who wants kind of a legacy manager, your own Ferguson, your own Wenger, your own Klopp? Or, 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 have you have love
1: be- I'd love to. have.
0: Yeah, one. I was going to ask. I mean, do you well, want someone who sort of stays for like five, six, seven, eight, ten years and becomes well, this kind of iconic figure at the club?
1: Yeah. Well, the answer to that is obviously yes, because if a manager is doing that in the present state of football, it means you're really, really winning. Yeah. Like only a manager like Ferguson or Klopp or whoever, you know, uh, is there. Because they keep winning. Now, as we know, Ferguson only became Alex Ferguson because he was allowed, as you were a bit more then, to not really do that well for a bit and to find his feet and to find how you know, that Man United team were going to play. And that's what, I'm not saying anything new here, that's what seems less allowed now uh, than you know it used to be. And that that exists in all forms of culture, actually. I think that now if you watch something on TV. Uh, like a new comedy or whatever, if Twitter decides within the first 20 minutes they don't like it. That can be binned now, you know, because commissioners Mm. run scared of it. And there's a very kind of rapid response uh, sort of thing to everything now. Our culture moves much more quickly than it used to. And I think that can be problematic. Having said that, you know, I am a bit itchy at the moment about Chelsea. uh, And, you know, there've been so many... Managers, I was just it just occurred to me that I'd sort of forgotten about Andre Villas Boas, <laughs> who uh, came and yeah, absolutely. whenever it was. When, when did he come? Well, the he name came just came in, into he, my head. He came in the um, season
0: you won the European Cup because he started that season but then got sacked. Then Di Matteo took over, and he was obviously the man who led you to the to the European Cup in 2012,
1: right? Yeah, well, you see, that's interesting, isn't it? Because Di Matteo obviously didn't stay much longer no, after he, he won later. the European Cup, you know. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He got back a few months later, you know, and arguably Andre Villas-Boas might have a claim to say, you know, that was my team and what happened to my credit or whatever. Yeah. But having said that, I probably wanted, I probably wanted him to go when things were going wrong for him. So it's hard to know as a football fan. Um, but I, yes, I, I would love it. I Also, I think it's interesting with managers, isn't it? Um, I don't know how you feel about Klopp now, but so I'm a, I'm a friend of Russell Brand and Russell Brand, I've noticed someone he loves football, but he really has a thing about managers. I think it's because uh, Russell had a complicated relationship with his dad, and he's looking <laughs> for, a, for a more perfect dad, right? So he would he would be a, he would be really obsessed. I noticed with Mourinho when Mourinho was great and whatever. And I wonder if there is a bit of that in all football fans. You're thinking like, I want the perfect dad. For my- <laughs> My team, my yeah, one who isn't going to leave, be an absent dad. And yeah, there's going to be this new dad I have to deal with that's sort of, you know, like in love with my club <laughs> as with my mum. Uh, so <laughs> I think it is, yeah, it is something that you yearn for, certainly. And, I, and Klopp seems amazing. I mean, both of the, he's, he's always amazing in interviews, but I do think he's found a really brilliant way of playing. Yeah. You know, it's a really astonishingly fast and amazing and high, all that high pressure way of playing. It all seems brilliant to me and very entertaining as well, you know the way he's, you know, brought Alexander Armstrong on from a youngster to mm. be now, I think, an unbelievable player and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'd love to have someone like that. Yeah,
0: I think... I think different... I like Frank Lampard.
1: I get me yeah. wrong, I like Frank Lampard. And I think he's a great bloke. Uh, but I... Yeah, I, I think he's... I, I, by his own admission, you know, he's struggling at the moment. Yeah.
0: Well, you, you mentioned this. We should say, we're recording this the day after Chelsea, as as you said, lost 2-0 at Leicester. They're in a very bad run of form at the moment. Um, by the time this comes out... He may have been sacked, uh, he may well not have done. He may have turned things around,
2: who knows? Just come in, it's only just happened. We, we, we knew it was going to happen at some point today. It's happened right now. OK, Chelsea Football Club of today parted company with head coach Frank Lampard. This has been a very difficult decision and not one that the owner and the board have taken lightly. We are grateful to Frank for what he has achieved in his time as head coach of the club. However, recent results and performances have not met the club's expectations leaving the club mid-table without any clear path to sustained improvement. That's quite an interesting line there. There can never be a good time to part ways with a club legend such as Frank but after lengthy deliberation and consideration, it was decided a change is needed now to give the club time to improve performances and results this season. We've got quotes from Roman Abramovich. We don't hear from him very often but he says this. Uh, this this was a very difficult decision for the club, not least because I have an excellent personal relationship with Frank and I have the utmost respect for him. He is a man of great integrity and has the highest of work ethics. However, under current circumstances, we believe it is the best time to change managers. On behalf of everyone at the club the board and personally, I would like to thank Frank for his work as head coach and wish him every success in the future. He's an important icon of this great club and his status here remains undiminished. He will always be warmly welcomed back at Stamford Bridge. And they just end this statement by saying the club will be making no further comment until such time as a new head coach is appointed. We've just been told there by Sky in Germany that Thomas Tuchel, they think Sky in Germany, that he'll be in the dugout for Wednesday's game against Wolves.
0: I think different clubs have different cultures around managers. I remember the, the journalist Brian Reed, who's a Liverpool fan, uh, once wrote, and it really stuck with me that Liverpool fans Liverpool fans are a group of people who want to fall in love with their manager. And he and he and he sort of traced it back to the relationship the fans in the '60s had with Shankly and, and the way they yeah, fell right in love right. with him. And and I agree with that. Whenever Liverpool managers have come, I I willed myself to love them, and most of them have been actually really good. But then you've had sort of Roy Hodgson in the midst of it and stuff. But I want I think the culture at Chelsea, perhaps because of how they've just come and gone, that maybe it's different and maybe you think you're not like this, but maybe a lot of Chelsea fans sort of shrug their shoulders when the manager gets sacked because they know another one will come in and he'll probably win you a trophy anyway. So it'll be absolutely fine. So I think it's quite fascinating the relationship fans have with, with managers depending on, on who they support. But I mean, the most iconic man in that period, of course, has been Jose Mourinho. How has your emotions to him changed over time? I mean, he felt like a godlike figure in 2004. By the the end of his second reign, when that was going badly, I think it felt like a lot of Chelsea fans got pissed off with him. He's now Spurs manager, so perhaps he's a bit of a villain. How how has your emotions towards him changed?
1: I don't think he was a villain because he's Spurs manager. Uh, I mean, I've I've met Mourinho uh, a couple of times. I interviewed him for the Radio Times, uh, and I don't think I've ever met anyone. Uh, with such iron iron self confidence uh mm. and who could transform almost any question into an answer that was about how amazing he is as, <laughs> as a manager yeah um, uh, but uh that's good i think you know it's a very high pressure job and you want uh your team i think to be uh you know managed by someone who has that kind of ironclad you know visionary status to some extent um, I, I do remember actually in sort of 2015 feeling bad, not, my, not for myself, but a bit on behalf of the fans because Mourinho was getting a lot of stick mm. uh, at the end of his second tenure. And yeah. I did re- think this bloke did incredible things for the club 10 years ago uh, when he was first here, in uh, ways that for someone like me felt transformative. Yeah. And as I say, for the first time, maybe we're going to be a club that is unbeatable for decades, you know, and we're going to, we're going to dominate English football, which didn't quite happen, but it did, it's the nearest we've got, was in Mourinho's first reign. One other thing about Mourinho's first tenure at the club, in the initial period, we also played a lot of really amazing attacking football. I know that seems weird now when Mourinho's got this incredible reputation for parking the bus and for defensive football and whatever, and I've heard him say things that feel very like that, like he's someone who prefers his players not to have the ball and all that shit. But I... We used to win games regularly, 3 4 nil. you know, we, lots of goals, lots of attacking football when he first appeared. And it, it was only really much later on that he became someone who I think, as things started to go wrong, and that's when Mourinho is not so great. is great when it's going well. I think he yeah. becomes, as I say, a bit in the bunker when things go badly. That's when the team were suddenly playing a very closed-down, stifled, uh, you know, form of football. And I felt that even though the club was playing shit by the end of his second tenure and everyone was unhappy and all the rest of it, I still felt that people should bear it in mind what he (laughs) did did for the club when they decided to basically, you know, boo at Jose Mourinho at Stamford Bridge.
0: Do you feel though do you feel he changed though in those in those two periods? Because I remember even though I was very much pro Rafa Benitez and it was that period, that real height and rivalry between Liverpool and Chelsea in the early noughties, I I sort of not secretly, I openly admired Mourinho. I thought he had great charisma. And as you say, actually the football, Chelsea were playing in that early in his first spell, was actually really good when you had Duff and Robin, you know, bombing down yeah. the leagues and obviously. Yeah. But it felt like by and the time of his dropped, second spell, you know, yeah, Drogba being absolutely amazing. People. Yeah, absolutely. But by the time of his second spell, and certainly into his period as manager of Man United, he had, for me, felt like he'd become quite a bitter and paranoid man. Is that being unfair to him, do you think?
1: I find that quite difficult to say because I do have more than a bit of a residual respect and kind of affection for Jose Mourinho. Yeah. Um, so, I but yes, I mean, I, I think it's more or less what I what I just said is that I think Mourinho has no plan B. That's that's his problem. He's yeah. got an incredible plan A. Although I think I think in terms of tactically, Most people are wise to it now. I think people sort of know how Mourinho teams play and they can deal with it. And that's why he's not quite as successful as he was 10 years ago, because he doesn't really seem to have a different way of doing things. And I I would say, having met him, that the idea of doing things differently would be anathema to him, because it would imply a
2: failure.
1: Mm. He kind of can't accept failure. Um, Let me tell you a story, actually. It was just before he became a pundit on BT. So it was 2014. Uh, he did a press conference sort of announcing... I think it was, the start, it was the start of football on BT television and he was their big pundit at the time uh, and there was lots of press there and he was, you know, very starry and I got 15 minutes with him. But the story I want to tell you, right, is that he suddenly started talking about how... Um, about Kaká, the, the Brazilian, Brazilian player. Yeah, yeah. Right? And Kaká... Kaka played for him in, at, at Real Madrid, mm. but he didn't, he didn't get on with Mourinho and he hardly played, right? But then Mourinho told me in that interview that uh, the Chelsea player, Philippe Luiz, right, was talking to him about Kaka, who's a friend of his, and, and said to him, oh, Kaka told me wonderful things about you, Jose. And he said, you should come and you should work with Jose Mourinho. Uh, and he, and so that's why Philippa Luis came to Chelsea at that point in time, right? Is Mourinho's point. And what I think about that, he talked about how much it meant to him, is that Mourinho's taken a negative, the fact that he couldn't make Kaká, a brilliant player, work at Real Madrid and the audience <laughs> played him or whatever, and turned it into a positive about <laughs> And I think that's very him, you know. People might have said, that was a real, you know, if I had to say one thing I regret about yeah. my time at Real Madrid, I couldn't make Kaká work. No. no, even though that happened, told Filipe Luís that I was great, and yeah. that's why I, you should come and play under Mourinho. And it, in a way, it's amazing that you've got, as I say, that iron self-confidence. But it also shows this sense of like, is this a guy who learns yeah. from his mistakes? And I'm not sure, sure he does, but yeah. he's doing all right at first.
0: Yeah, well, my, my opinions changed on him again. I flipped again, actually. I watched that. I don't know if you saw it, the, the Spurs documentary. That was on Amazon uh, a few months ago. And he actually came across really well. I know it's probably a bit of a puff piece, but I actually did think he came across really well. And I found myself agreeing with him a lot more when he speaks openly now as Spurs manager. A few of the things he said recently about fixture changes and just a few other things. I, yeah, I'm sort of warming to him again. So I've, gone, I, through, I I've he, gone through a journey with him as well, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I think he, when I first, first met him, which was at film premiere, Uh, when I was with my kids and he was with his kids he just seemed like a really nice bloke and we did talk about football we talked about Robin Uh. Uh, Robin was on fire then and I just (laughs) decided I was going to go on and on about what a great player he was and he just agreed with me and he just seemed like a really nice bloke and I think maybe he is a nice bloke but I think he is also you know someone who's been chased and pressurized by all sorts of people all the time and his reaction to that is a bit passive, aggressive <laughs> at times. And I also think, you know, when I sometimes, I mean, the adverts that he's been in, whatever, I think he has an ironic sense of his own pers- persona yeah. as well when he needs.
3: I'm European champion. So I'm not one of, of the bottle. A, I think I'm a special one. For me, pressure is uh, bird flu. I'm feeling a lot, I'm serious. I'm feeling a lot of pressure with the, the swan in Scotland. <laughs> no, I'm serious. You are laughing, but I'm serious. is not far. Yeah, I'm, I'm more scared of the swan than than football. No eggs, no homelands. And depends of the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs, class one, class two, class three and some are more expensive than others, and some give you better on it. For me, in football, nothing hurts me. Nothing hurts me. What hurts me was what happened uh, yesterday to my family, not to me, not to me, to my family. What is football compared with, with, with life? A swan with bird food? But for me, that's a drama of the last two days. I have to buy some masks and stuff. I'm serious.
0: He'd have been a great guest on fantasy football with you and Frank back in the day. I think he would have made great, uh, great. He TV. Would have been
1: fantastic. It'd yeah. <laughs> yeah. be great, and also he'd been a, a regular in sketches, wouldn't he? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think Frank would have played him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But Frank could have just about done the Portuguese accent. I think I don't know I could have done it. Uh,
0: David, you've been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much for that. Uh, before I let you go, just a couple of usual things we end this podcast with. So first of all, uh, you've been kind enough to pick an all-time Chelsea eleven for us. This is eleven based on. Uh, your times point Chelsea of course so uh, it's in I'll go through it uh, it's in the 4-3-3 formation uh, you've gone with Peter Benetti in goal your back four is Ron Harris, Marcel Desailly, John Terry and Ashley Cole midfield in the Makaleli role you've gone with Claude Makaleli of course uh, alongside him Alan Hudson and Frank Lampard and you've got a front three of Gianfranco Zola, Didier Jogba and Charlie Cook. Um, I'm aware you had some selection issues with this team, namely picking
1: Cook over Hazard. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there's no question that the older players in this team, although I think they're brilliant, let's be absolutely clear, these are brilliant yeah. players, uh, they are possibly nostalgia placings. I'm definitely not sure that Ron Harris should really be in that team. <laughs> uh, he, he was chopper, yeah. uh, as he you know, was, was mainly just a thug. But he did represent, you know, a kind of fighting spirit in the early Chelsea team that makes me want to put him in there. Alan Hudson was a brilliant player. He was an amazing player. Questionable whether his best period was at Chelsea or at Stoke. uh, But nonetheless, he was a brilliant player. He's one of those players that you think it's hard to know how he would have done now. Apart from anything, he was a big drinker and smoker and nothing like as fit as players are now. But he was a brilliant player. Charlie Cook, I probably uh, angsted about most because Hazard, certainly at one point, would have been up there with the best Chelsea players I've ever seen, and I felt at one point when he was playing for Chelsea, was the best player in the world. Yeah, you know, was certainly as good as Ronaldo and Messi and all that. Mm. But Charlie Cook is in my memory as Chelsea's, you know, great flair winger, um, and I just feel romantically that I wanted to put him in uh, but at the same level I didn't put Peter Osgood in who is you know from that period thought of as Chelsea's great striker because Didier Drogba was so incredible and I associated him so much with winning the European Cup so I felt he had to go there and obviously Zola has to be there. No it's
0: a very <laughs> good thing she's saying Drogba um <laughs> So he had two spells at Chelsea, two thousand four to two thousand twelve, when he scored one hundred goals in two hundred twenty six games. Came back in twenty fourteen and scored four goals in twenty eight games. So a really good return, and yeah, just won a ton of trophies with Chelsea and was an absolutely yeah extraordinary striker for the club. So I think his place is is absolutely valid. Uh, brilliant, David. That's absolutely great. I just to ask you one final question. It's the it's the question we end this podcast with. If you could go back in time and alter one moment from your time up to now supporting Chelsea. What would you choose and why? So it can be a very personal experience, or it could be a, a, the result of a game or um, a transfer, anything you want. But from your time point in Chelsea now, if you could change one thing, what would you choose?
1: Uh, it, I would go back and tell John Terry to check his boots <laughs> <laughs> carefully uh, and possibly increase the size of his studs uh, <laughs> before the game in Moscow, the, the European Champions League game in Moscow against Man United so that he didn't fall over before taking his penalty. Uh, and we might have won that game, which, I mean, you know, I don't want to be greedy, but it would have been brilliant to win two Champions Leagues, and particularly against Man United. So that's my choice, uh, to fix John Terry's boots so that he didn't fall over and scored that goal.
0: Well, as someone who watched that game wanting Chelsea to win because he really didn't want Man United to win, I, I, um, I would go back in time and change his studs as well if I could. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, David Bedil, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Sachin. It's been a joy.